Thank you, Eli. Yes, we are out of sequence. Uh, John and his family will be out of pocket next Sunday, and I'll, Deborah and I'll be in Montana next Sunday. And so Greg graciously agreed to take next week, and, and I stepped into this week. And while we're talking about that, I just want to make you aware that there's going to be a little bit of a shift in our scheduling uh, going forward. Uh, John McPeters has been taking every other week. And we're going to transition that down where it'll be the three of us on a three-week rotation. But sometimes even that may have to switch because of vacations and other commitments and teaching opportunities in and, and other places. Uh, so if you think it's Greg's time and it ends up being John's time, just hang on. Greg, Greg will be back. Uh, or John or John, uh, with an H and without an H. Um, the passage that we'll be looking at today is the last part of Hebrews 12 and the first part of chapter 13. Um, Hebrews has these heavy theological sections, and now we're transitioning into more uh, admonitions and to be honest, there's some of these that don't hang together quite as well as others do. I'm not trying to be critical of the biblical material. I'm just uh, confessing that they seem a bit disconnected in my reading. And that may be more an indication of, of my problems uh, than anything else. Um, or it's sort of like the preacher who gets to the end of his allotted time and realizes he had a lot more to say, and so he raises the plow and he just hits the top of some of the things that he wanted to dig deeper on. Um, Hebrews twelve fourteen. Work at living in peace with everyone. And work at living a holy life. For those who are not holy will not see the Lord. Look after each other so that none of you fails 
to receive the grace of God. Watch out that no poisonous root of bitterness grows up to trouble you, corrupting many. Make sure that no one is immoral or godless like Esau, who traded his birthright as the firstborn son for a single meal. You know that afterward, when he wanted his father's blessing, he was rejected. It was too late for repentance, even though he begged with bitter tears. You've not come to a physical mountain, to a place of flaming fire, darkness, gloom, and whirlwind as the Israelites did at Mount Sinai. For they heard an awesome trumpet blast and a voice so terrible that they begged God to stop speaking. They staggered back under God's command. If even an animal touches the mountain, it must be stoned to death. Moses himself was so frightened at the sight that he said, I am terrified and trembling. No, you've come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to countless thousands of angels in a joyful gathering. You've come to the assembly of God's firstborn children, whose names are written in heaven. You have come to God himself, who is the judge over all things. You have come to the spirits of the righteous ones in heaven who have now been made perfect. You've come to Jesus, the one who mediates the new covenant between God and people, and to the sprinkled blood which speaks of forgiveness instead of crying out for vengeance like the blood of Abel. Be careful that you do not refuse to listen to the one who is speaking. For if the people of Israel did not escape when they refused to listen to Moses, the earthly messenger, we will certainly not escape if we reject the one who speaks to us from heaven. When God spoke from Mount Sinai, his voice shook the earth. But now he makes another promise. Once again, I will shake not only the earth, but the heavens also. This means that all of creation will be shaken and removed so that only unshakable things will remain. Since we're receiving a kingdom that is unshakable, let us be thankful and please God by worshiping him with holy fear and awe. For our God is a devouring fire. Keep on loving each other as brothers and sisters. Don't forget to show hospitality to strangers. For some who have done this have entertained angels without realizing it. Remember those in prison as if you were there yourself. Remember also those being mistreated 
as if you felt their pain in your own bodies. Give honor to marriage and remain faithful to one another in marriage. God will surely judge people who are immoral and those who commit adultery. Don't love money. Be satisfied with what you have. For God has said, I will never fail you. I will never abandon you. So we can say with confidence, the Lord is my helper, so I will have no fear. What can mere people do to me? Today, I don't have any slides. It's not the fact that they've fallen asleep back in the booth. Well, actually, I have one slide, and we'll see it in a few minutes, hopefully a little bit of humor uh, to capture our thinking for a moment, uh, and then a rewriting of the text of that one. Uh, I've been reading from the New Living Translation. It's what's used in my daily Bible reading, and I, I found it a little bit helpful here. There's some phrases that sort of hung together for my brain to give a, a bit of an outline for this section. Three words that begin with the letter L. The first one is found in chapter 12, verse 15. Look out for one another so that no one misses out on God's grace. Then verse 25, listen to God, the one who's speaking. And then in chapter 13, verse 1, keep on loving each other as brothers and sisters. Look out for one another. Any analogy that we might come up with is going to break down. It's not going to go far enough to admonish us fully in what God's Word is revealing. The, the analogy of a race is brought up there in earlier parts of chapter 12 that John covered. Uh, keep our eyes fixed on Jesus. He's, he's at the finish line. He's cheering us on. There's this great cloud of witnesses who are cheering us. Keep running the race. Keep moving forward. Keep progressing in your walk of faith for the Lord. Don't give up. But this isn't a solitary race. In the sense that we're not running it as lone, isolated individuals. Bethany's done much more running than I have. One of the hard parts of a marathon or a half marathon or a 10K is you're out there by yourself. And a lot of us have run, who have run find that it's better if we've got somebody to run it with, somebody who can help pace us, remind us, the conversation can keep us going. When our brain begins to convince us, just quit. You're not going to make it anyway. That, that hurt that you've felt so many times in your calf, you know, it, it's probably a tear about to just take place. And just, just stop now. I hope Bethany doesn't have too many of those 
conversations. Uh, those were some of the ones I heard when Deborah and I trained for that half marathon so many years ago now in our youthful foolishness. <laughs> I alluded to the fact that we had one long run training day that we changed our route and we ended up in a place where there was almost no shade and it was the hottest day of that fall that we had had. The week of our, right, leading right up to our run, and it was miserable. And all these questions, because we hadn't been running the route that the race would follow, we'd been running over on the trailheads, and the older ones were all beautifully covered with shade trees. But a newer section that would give us one long continuous run, the majority of it was out in the open. It was later in the morning than the race would be run. There were a lot of differences. It was tempting to just give it up. And if I'd been by myself, I probably would have. In all honesty. I didn't want to let her down. She didn't want to let me down. We kept each other going. Look after each other so that none of you fails to receive the grace of God. I want you to take a moment and reflect back on your life. Who are some of the people who have looked out for you? A mother, a grandmother, a father, a brother, a sister, a, a best friend. Someone who knows you well enough that when your pace is really slowed and you're really struggling, they take note of that. And they speak an encouraging word. If you make it very far in this Christian walk, this Christian race, it's likely you've had some people at some important junctures who looked out for you. They weren't just concerned about themselves, they were concerned about other people around them. As I prepared, I was reflecting on some of my life's experiences. And uh, the first, I had a few jobs mowing yards and then working at Hardee's one summer. And the one that I did the most summers while I was going to college was at a guitar factory. And there was one lady who did most of the actual construction of the bodies of the guitars. And I was prepping the pieces of wood that she would assemble and actually make guitars. I'd get credit sometime for making guitars. Well, I didn't really. I just I cut out the parts and pieces that somebody else who was much better craftsperson assembled. And I remember I, I, I worked between high school and college, and then the next summer I went on campaigns door knocking in four southeastern cities. 
That's a whole other experience. We won't go there talking about that. Uh, one place I had, one, one little tidbit, I had three partners to pass out from heat exhaustion. It was that hot in Panama City, Florida. But then the following summers, I worked back at Gallagher Guitar Company. My second year there, things had changed. The father who built the business had died of a massive heart attack. Actually, the end of my first summer there. And the name of the business was his name and son's guitar company. But in that intervening year from when I worked until I worked, those two brothers were in a battle for control of the business. The older brother had an engineering degree. The younger brother had a psychology degree. The engineering for those guitars had already been done by the father. But the older brother assumed by his age and his expertise that he was the better one to run the business. But today there's a lot of talk about soft skills, people skills. The younger brother understood client relationships. Relationships with the workers. Long story short, he ended up winning out, the younger brother. And then the name was changed to just the last name, Guitar Company. The lady that I mentioned, that I worked closely with, about the second week back, the second summer, said, John, there's a struggle going on. You need to keep your head down. And you need to keep your work done. Because while you were gone last summer, there were some things that went badly. And you got the credit for those. I was shocked, dismayed, angry, frustrated, disappointed. Began immediately to try to think through who in the staff was the likely culprit. Narrowed it down to one individual. We'd gone to high school together. I don't have any proof at all. But I imagined in my mind this whole scenario of how some of his failures had become my responsibility. But I kept coming back to her words. Keep your head down. Do your work. Don't get drawn into the middle of this fray. See, it really wasn't about me. It was about this other swirl that was going on. Sometimes in our lives, those are the kinds of situations we find ourselves close to. 
What do we do then? Let's go back to verse 14. Work at living in peace with everyone and work at living a holy life for those who are not holy will not see the Lord. Look after each other so that none of you fails to receive the grace of God. Watch out that no root of bitterness grows up to trouble you, corrupting many. I won't ask for a show of hands of how many of you have a grudge. Uh, A uh, deep wounding from your past that you can experience almost immediate resentment. And resentment in the classic sense that you can be back to the emotional state of that moment in a flash. That's what I envision when I come across this phrase about a root of bitterness. It's, it's not just that there was a hurt. It's that I can, I can go back to that moment and I can be freshly in its throes. And I resent the other person, the other people, with the same anger, frustration, whatever term you want to pick out of your vocabulary, of that original moment. Recently, Rachel, our daughter, texted her mom and said uh, she had run across some good a cappella singing on the internet, and it reminded her of some of our trips when she was young to the Diana singing. And she did a little searching and found out it's still going on. It'll come up in September. I don't remember the dates. It's a particular weekend. Second weekend is what Deborah thinks that, you know. But Rachel reflected, remembered going to the Diana singing, remembered some of her cousins who would always be there and sit We would sit close together. And then she remembered us getting together and swimming at their lake house. In her mind, those things all happened the same day or back-to-back days. Deborah responded, well, no, Rachel, uh, they lived in Winchester. The Diana singing is down along I-65. That's a pretty good drive from one to the other. Family reunions is when we would go to the lake house. Diana singing may have felt like a family reunion because a lot of that extended family were there seated around us. Why do I tell that story? I don't know about you, but I'm pretty gifted at conflating things. You know that word? You take two disconnected things, you pull them together, and you create a detailed scenario of what's going on. That's where I was tempted to go back at the guitar factory. Well, he did this, and she said this, and 
he was the one, and you've manufactured this scenario. How does that jive with this opening admonition in verse 14? Work at living in peace with everyone. Work at living a holy life. Don't let any root of bitterness cause ongoing problems. Will you watch out for the person that you've had the most trouble getting along with? That's the hard question this passage sort of shoves in my face. Look out, look after each other so that none of you fails to receive the grace of God. This is a very different emotional response than, you know, when the guy goes flying around you and causes danger passing you on a blind two-lane road. And your first thought is, I hope there's an officer over that next hill. You know, we, we want swift justice there. Then there's this solemn reminder of Esau at his worst. He's, he's been out. He's hungry. He gets home. His brother's got a pot of beans. He said, boy, those really do smell good. Here in the south, we'd ask, if, do you have any cornbread to go with them? Red lentils. Would you give me a pot of those, a, a bowl of those? I'm starving. Tell you what, let's make a deal. You give me the birthright, I'll give you the beans. Deal. The whole Jacob and Esau life experience. That's not my favorite place to go to for illustrative material, personally. I find it troublesome. I find that whole family quite dysfunctional. Favoritism run amok. That's my heading for. And yet through it all, God's working. God's story is being perpetuated. I say that to say, folks, you, you know this already. It's going to be messier than we wish it was. There are times some of our family members may be quite conniving. 
there's a warning that there may come a day when they'll come to a place of repentance and even beg with bitter tears, but it'll be too late for reconciliation. I am thankful with Jacob and Esau that decades later when Jacob shows up and puts his property, his, his, his herds and his workers and then his first wife and then his second wife in front of him, the human shield, and finally is begging for forgiveness. Esau says, I'm over it, brother. We're good. You keep your stuff. Couched between this look out for one another and love one another, there's this listen to God section. And my recommendation is that we sort of take this whole section as a sandwich. There's these interpersonal relationships in this theme of grace with the meat of the passage focused around listening to God. probably need to call Rachel and let her know that I've used her extensively in my sermon. She overall I think was okay with it. There were probably a time or two that she wished it would just just stop that. I don't remember how old she was, but there was one day when one of her friends had done something to her at school and and she was rehearsing it with her mom and she said, I, I'm just I'm just gonna I don't remember even she was going to do something back to this supposed friend. And Deborah said, Rachel, you're, you're really not supposed to do it that way. She said, well, you know, do unto others as they do unto you. That, that was her take on the golden rule. That's what she wants because that's what she's doing to me. See, she wanted the other girl to apply the golden rule. Do unto others as you'd have them do unto you. So now she was convinced that was the other girl's action, so that's what the other girl wanted, and she was happy to give it to her. That's not the golden rule. That might be the iron rule, but it's not golden. Well, no, Rachel, that's, that's really not what Jesus said. How do we listen to God when he's admonishing us to make a real effort for peace and to, to love others, to seek their well-being, to, to be sure they don't miss out on God's grace? And then he's got this scary picture of how horrible 
Mount Zion was when, when the law was given. It, it was so severe. It was so extreme. God's awe and his fearfulness was on such incredible display that even Moses trembles. But that's really not the picture he's wanting us to get, is it? Verse 22, you've come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to countless thousands of angels in joyful gathering. Praise team, Matt, you know, other folks that lead. I wonder, you know, what would worship be like if this was our perpetual picture we're not gathering with 65, 70, 80, 85, 100, 200, 10,000 believers alone. You're getting to sing with countless thousands of angels in a joyful gathering. See, see, this isn't all dread and fear and, and gutting it out that he's using for motivation, for pursuing peace and loving one another. You've come to the assembly of God's firstborn children whose names are written in heaven. Take just a moment. Twist your neck. I, I know for some of us that's harder than others. And look around at some of the people in the room. I, I really do want you to do that. If you're in the front, look, look toward the back. God's children whose names are written in heaven. That, that's who you're hanging out with today. Well, I'm not too sure about that with him. Oh, yes. And, and if that doesn't, you know, thousands of angels... God's firstborn children. You've come to God Himself, who is judge over all things. You've come to the spirits of the righteous ones in heaven who've now been made perfect. You've come to Jesus, the one who mediates the new covenant between God and people and to the sprinkled blood, which speaks of forgiveness instead of crying out for vengeance like the blood of Abel. Be careful that, that you don't refuse to listen to that God.
Someone has said the most important single thing that we believe is what we believe about God, how we picture God. Is he angry and grim? Is he disappointed and fed up? Is he a God who's admonishing forgiveness instead of vengeance? Keep on loving each other as brothers and sisters. That's the admonition in chapter 13, verse 1. There's that familial love that's extended from our blood relatives to our Jesus relatives. And it's to be so great that it even extends to strangers. Years ago when I was traveling like that summer and then later in college and, and uh, even later with some of the teaching that I've done globally, uh, one of the things that a college professor really encouraged is take a simple thank you card that's just got the word thank you on the, the front cover, an envelope, and write a message and leave it where your host or hostess will find it. Just to say thank you. And write something appropriate was the admonition. All of those travels were Christian mission related. And this passage popped in my mind. Don't forget to show hospitality to strangers for some who have done this have entertained angels without realizing it. And so I just wrote that one out said, sorry you didn't get an angel this time, but I do appreciate the hospitality. And it became my standard thank you. Abram and Sarah got to entertain some angels unawares. There are others who offer a sacrifice and the being doesn't eat it but steps into the flame and goes up with the smoke. And then they realize we had an angel at our, in our home. Now, if we're to envision coming together with thousands of angels, I want you to recognize there are still angels. And it's not beyond the realm of possibility that if you'll be diligent in entertaining angels, I mean, strangers, there may be angelic beings among them from time to time. I'm not saying make that your all only motivation. But I'm saying in our mechanistic mindset, 
don't discount God's working in ways that are beyond our modernistic expectations. Remember those in prison as if you were there yourself. Remember also those being mistreated as if you felt their pain in your own bodies. One of the costs of following closely after Jesus is you reach places and points in time when empathy feeling with the other is, is a high cost. In professional settings, we're trained to keep some distance. Don't go too far with this. You may not come back. And you want to be able to help them move forward. But there's a place for empathy. Give honor to marriage. Remain faithful to one another in marriage. God will judge people who are immoral and those who commit adultery. Don't love money. He's quit preaching and gone to meddling now, right? There's some of that clash between the American dream and kingdom worldview. But I want you to notice where he grounds it, and we'll close with this theme. For God has said, I will never fail you. I will never abandon you. So we can say with confidence, the Lord's my helper. So I'll have no fear. What can mere people do to me? Circles back to that. How do we see God? What are we expecting from Him? going to ask the praise team to come on up and we'll pray in closing. Father, we thank you for this section of your word. We pray that we will listen to it well. Not, not just this morning in our reading and reflecting, but Bring it back to our minds through the course of this week. Give us courage to look out for one another. To make sure that, that no one's in this race alone. Lord,
Help us to work through and process our failures, our shortcomings, our struggles, our disagreements. By remembering this picture of this passage that we are your children whose names are written in heaven. And we're able to remember that because we focus on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. The one who worked so fully to overcome vengeance with forgiveness. I pray, Father, that we can become more and more like Jesus. So much so that when others are around us, they smell His sweet aroma on us, in us, through us. In Jesus I pray. Amen. Let's stand.